Southerners have long created the storylines that shape the nation, and in some ways the world. We have planted the seeds that spark global movements. As goes the South, so goes the nation. Never in our lifetime has that been more true. Whether it's fighting for racial justice, ending health disparities, fighting for voting rights by organizing people around common goals, these issues, and the Southerners leading the charge over them, are going to set the tempo for the 2020 elections. This season of The Reckon Interview, we're digging into the stories and people beyond the polls and partisanship. We're speaking with the community leaders and fresh young voices doing the work of building the future South, on the ground and out of the spotlight. If you're looking for another political podcast to handicap the horse race, there are plenty of them out there. But we want you to join us as we explore the Southern issues, trends, and movements that matter most. And hopefully learn how to plant our own seeds of change. So subscribe to The Reckon Interview wherever you get your podcasts. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. Educators understand the importance to their communities. They understand that the school in many places in Alabama is the hub of the community. And when that school is not functioning properly or the way it normally functions, community life doesn't function that way as well. Today we hear from Dr. Vic Wilson, the executive director of the Council for Leaders in Alabama Schools. He's also former superintendent of Hartsell City Schools. He spent about 25 years working in education with professionals from pre-K through graduate school. He's also been a principal, assistant principal, teacher, and coach. It's been more than a couple of weeks now since the first few school systems opened in Alabama, with dozens of others joining them this week. My colleague and AL.com education reporter Trish Crane says the schools are reopening carefully and with a huge emphasis on safety of students and staff. Students are wearing masks. Many students are learning in small groups. But COVID-19 cases are turning up throughout the state. And with at least 400 students statewide already sent home to quarantine, and at least a dozen or so cases of COVID-19 in students and staff had been diagnosed, according to reports. State superintendents are hopeful and glad to have kids back. But Trish reports that they're certainly concerned about reports of coronavirus exposure. About 260,000 students have opted to stay home and learn online when their system does reopen. Another 250,000 are zoned for systems that chose to stay online only for now. I spoke to Dr. Vic Wilson about how Alabama schools have done after reopening so far, what he's hearing right now from principals and teachers, what a typical day looks like inside an Alabama school right now, why the state doesn't require COVID-19 testing for staff and students, and the many challenges educators are facing as the semester begins. My name is Vic Wilson. I live in Pike Road, Alabama, and I am the executive director for the Council for Leaders in Alabama Schools, and the acronym we go by is CLASS, C-L-A-S. And can you tell me what exactly you do in that role? What we do, we are a professional organization. And we provide all of the professional learning for educational leaders across the state. We have right at 4,000 members. We provide their legal defense. We provide their legislation and advocacy. We provide all of their conferences. That goes back with that uh, professional learning. We also provide their awards and recognition uh, and the networking opportunities. And we do that for, there are 11 different affiliates under our umbrella. 
we have the elementary, middle, and high school principals. We have the special education directors. We have the personnel directors. We have the CMP directors. So if you have a leadership role in, in an LEA, that stands for Local Educational Association, then you have the opportunity to be a member with us. There was so much anxiety for teachers and parents and even kids in the lead up to the beginning of the fall semester. But I want to start by asking about how principals are holding up right now and and how they've held up so far. There's obviously a lot on the plate of each principal, the pressure of planning accordingly, making sure that all protocols are in place, that children and their teachers are protected. What have you heard from principals lately, what their days look like as this semester gets underway? Well, typically, on a normal year, the middle of August, first of August, but through about the first week of September, is our quietest time because all the principals and all the school leaders are getting ready for school, and it is something that they know how to do very well. So typically, it's it's very quiet this time of the year. This year is the obvious exception because there's nothing typical about what they're doing. Even those that are coming back face-to-face are having to put in protocols that have never been utilized before in a school setting. So it is a very taxing process on all educators from, you know, the the superintendent all the way down to the custodian, all the way to the bus driver, to the first person that meets the kids every day. Uh, Custodians having to clean. And the principal at each building site is the person who's in charge of making sure all that happens. So that puts a lot of strain and stress on them too, which is why we are working some of our, professional learning this year are focusing on taking care of your own mental health. Uh, we, we obviously want you to take care of the mental health of the students and everybody under your care, but you've got to take care of your own mental health as well. The adult mental health care is very, very important. I've heard from several principals and I talk to them regularly. I send out regular emails and email blasts and try to make sure that I give them ample opportunity to contact and call us if we can help in any way. I know that you can't speak for every single school in Alabama, but just generally, what's your read on how things have gone so far now that obviously a lot of schools opened this week, but some have been open for at least a couple of weeks. What are you hearing about how things have gone so far? Well, what I'm hearing right now is that the, those that have gone back virtually are facing one set of circumstances and those that have come back face to face and or blended with a virtual option are facing two sets because you have in the face-to-face you've got all the social protocols social distancing protocols all the cleaning and all that all of that i've talked with sarah land i've talked with several of the districts that have started and they're taking an approach that it may be a two steps forward one step back or three steps forward one step back and if long as long as we assess what's happening on a regular basis and we have a reflective period that we say, all right, is this working? Do we need to pivot? Do we need to do this? And that's going to be episodic. That's going to be, you know, you can have one county that has three high schools and all three of them could be doing different things with the way they're delivering instruction based on what's happening with COVID or, you know, their outbreaks for that little area. So you're going to see, you know, there's 138 systems. There's roughly 100, uh, excuse me, there's roughly 1,500 schools around the state. And you might have 700 different ways schools being delivered. As long as everybody in that area has the communication process and understands what's going on and it's working to fidelity, I think that's the key. Working to put to fidelity in real town Alabama 
and five miles up the road in Nosova, they're doing it a little differently. As long as it's working for both places and everybody understands what's going on, then that's good. So it's when we don't have a, a clear communication process that the breakdowns become, you know, insurmountable and cause substantial disruption to the learning process. Well, and you mentioned potential steps back, even as you're making progress. Like, what do steps back look like? Let's say that you have a face-to-face and you have a protocol put in place that is the lunchroom in smaller capacity so that you can social distance. You come to the lunchroom and they have a meal that they prepackaged for you and they give it to you and kids are, well, all right, we say, we see that, all right, this is not going to work. This is not working like we want to. Let's change and have, let's stay in place in our classrooms and bring the lunch to them. So it could be something as simple as that right there. Now, if it's pervasive or if there's a greater outbreak, you may have to move and pivot from face-to-face back to virtual. So that's what I was talking about. It's just understanding where your pressure points are in every building, what's happening. Uh, you know, some schools may, well, prior to the governor's order, they may have decided to go without face masks. You know, that's another one. You get without face masks and someone says, oh, we got to have face masks. You can change right then. Okay, we're going with face masks. No questions asked. And that's what we're seeing. You know, my son starts back tomorrow and, you know, he's going face to face and he'll have a face mask. And the protocols, I've gotten wonderful directions, instructions. I feel confident that I know where he's going to park and his egress, ingress, and uh, the flow chart that's going to happen. And those are the things that you may have to change. If you see something's not working, don't keep doing it. That's where you put a plan in place that is the best plan for the data available at the time. When new data are presented, then you have to adjust your plans. And that's what we hope everybody's doing. You have to be nimble enough to be able to do that. And the communication piece is the key. You know, letting parents know, letting people know that, look, here's our plan for right now. This may change in a week. And if it doesn't change, you say, hey, everything's working really good. Let's keep doing this. Let's keep moving forward with the way we're doing it. And and you affirm the great things we're doing. And then if things aren't working out, we just got to own it and say, we'll do something different. Well, so I know that this varies from elementary to middle to high school, but what does a typical day look like inside schools? If we can try to paint a picture, what what are some major differences day to day and how are schools working to replicate a kind of normalcy despite the changes? You're going to see varying degrees of that as well. First and foremost, you're going to see the biggest difference is people are going to be socially distancing and they're going to be wearing masks. That's never happened before in schools. So you're going to see fewer congregation points. You're going to see much more of a process for class changes. Whereas in the past, it was just a like the movie Ants. Everybody comes out, pours into the hallway, and they go to their next class. Uh, you're going to see a very much a much more regimented flow process for that. You're going to have uh, guidelines in the halls, and there's going to be one two-way traffic, and you're going to be on one side of the hall going one way, on the other side of the hall going the other way. And it'll be much more like a traffic, you know, like, like on the street. And you don't pull out and pass if somebody's coming, those kinds of things. Uh, that's never, you know, that's just something that, while it happens in elementary all the time, you know, line leaders and all that kind of stuff, it rarely happens once you get up into the higher grades. Well, that's now happening in the higher grades as well. That's one way. Uh, the other way is simply the 
lunch rooms will be different. Uh, assemblies, assemblies aren't happening. All your information there will be delivered via intercom. And keep in mind that even the face-to-face, even the schools that have gone back face-to-face also have a blended option. So therefore, I think the number right now is fluctuates between, you know, a good corridor. It's probably 15 to 25 percent of the students have, accepted, have chosen to do virtual, even in the face-to-face places. So you got to think that whatever your school was last year at 100 percent capacity, you're now working at 75 to 85 percent capacity, which in and of itself gives you the ability to space people out a little bit better. The problem arises when you have larger class sizes than you're able to socially distance for the six feet in the classes. So that's when you've got to think outside the box. Are you going to go with an A and B and a rotating schedule? Are you going to have kids come in at this time? Are you going to stagger things? And that's what I'm saying about you could look at you know, school A and school B, both of them delivering instruction and getting learning taking place, and they're doing it completely different, even when they're both face-to-face. Well, what about the hybrid or staggered model in the districts that are doing it? Has that shown early signs of success, or is it still too soon to judge? A little of both, okay? From a standpoint of, when you ask me, is it, is it too soon to judge? Until we know what the, you know, at the end of the day, we're about to learn, Okay. And until we have some data to show that there hasn't been an appreciable drop in the in the achievement and, and growth and things like that, we really won't know. Now, there's going to be, I, I don't know what, we've been out of school for six months and, uh, you know, face-to-face, that is. And there's going to be varying degrees of what they call the COVID slide, depending on a myriad of factors, by the way. You know, there's so many things that go into that. It's, it's hard to just pinpoint that and say, well, it happened here because of this, but it happened here because of that. So there's just so many different things. But in terms of immediate returns, if you have staggered your schedules and you're not seeing any uptick, any cases or anything like that, anything more than normal that would be in your area, then I would say, that, okay, that's showing that it's working in that regard. But then getting back to the reason we're here, which is the learning and the engagement, it'll take time. It'll be a first grading period type thing before, you know, a, a nine-week period in to really give you an idea of how it's working. We'll be right back. So the home stretch of the spring semester obviously gave schools a crash course in remote learning, which I know helped to shape the structure and application of it this semester in many ways. But there was a concern about a digital divide and whether schools are able to get kids and teachers connected for remote learning. How has that played out from what you've seen so far this semester? Yeah, I hate to sound like a broken record, but that's going to vary also between the virtual deliverability of each district and, and their location. You know, a district can have as many devices as they need and more than they need and not have a wireless infrastructure that allows them to deliver it home or the ability of the parents to receive it where they are. When we closed the doors to face-to-face on March 13th, everybody says we went to remote or distance learning. We did. We really, what we went to then was emergency teaching. Anybody that thinks that a blanket virtual learning took place across the board evenly is not paying attention. And through no fault of the educators, just through the fault of, okay, this is the moving object hits an immovable force, and then all of a sudden we got to disperse and try to scramble to make sure that we're finishing the year. That was really emergency teaching. Now, over time, we learned some things that did or didn't work, hopefully, 
in each district, and we have implemented things that have taken place. My wife's a good example. She's a first grade teacher, and right now they're doing it virtually, and it's been a strain on her and the parents and the kids. But because they, they worked and put some things in place, they're doing it better than they would have done, you know, than they did in, in March. Uh, they have a much better plan as they go through it. So that's just something that, you know, you hope you saw across the board. And you do. You, you see people that are, that are much more ready for that than they were in, in March. Uh, but you also see how important face-to-face instruction and, and schools and the fabric of the schools and the community are all intertwined and, and the, the face-to-face need to do that is so critical to the locations, just in every little town, uh, every, every little county. Just that, that is something that's very important to their uh, vibrancy, I guess you would say. Well, I know that temperatures are being checked at some schools, if not all, and it's good to spot high temperatures and take the necessary steps to keep those folks from coming in and potentially spreading if they're positive. But we know that carriers are often asymptomatic and thermometers won't read that. So it seems like the best and truest way to know who does and doesn't have COVID is testing. Are any schools in the state testing faculty and students? And if not, why? They're not, the guidelines do not, you know, to my knowledge, you don't have anybody specifically testing somebody. Okay. And the the number one reason is because the CDC guidelines did not call for that particular aspect. You're putting a huge burden on schools to test when they don't have the robust aspect of enough testing facilities, proper protocols and procedures, you know, that, that all of that, you know, I would, I would ask if you were to go to a, a t-ball game this summer, which they had several of them and lots of other places. There was a lot of things that happened this summer that were normal. and There was a lack of any kind of testing and temperature taking and all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, when we get back to schools, they, they want schools to become the, the, the nurses and doctors. And uh, unfortunately, that's just not something that's tenable for us to be able to do. Plus, the guidelines don't necessarily call for the testing to be delivered by the uh, schools. There may be a few that if they have a health room or a health, there's a few schools that have like a nursing station and help built into their uh, system. And they could be doing it, but those protocols would be done because they would have a tether to a particular hospital or something like that. Or they've got staffed people that are doing that. I don't know of any, then, quite frankly, that are doing that. The temperature, on the other hand, is something that is easy to do and it is a, an indicator. One of the things you mentioned was the asymptomatic. You know, we're seeing more and more asymptomatic and we're finding out that after the fact, we could have this podcast a year from now and have a lot more data that a lot more people had COVID than we knew and were asymptomatic, you know, the whole time, I, I guess. But that, piece right there. You're exactly right. That piece of the asymptomatic stuff is the difficult thing. A child comes that may or may have it, or an adult. It happens in adults, too, to be asymptomatic and don't even know that they're sick. And then you get that spread. That's when. Well, that's why they have the protocols in place of the 615, and they try to do as much tracing as they can so that they can put the guidelines in place of whether you're going to be quarantined or whether you're going to be isolated in that nature.
Could you help me and others understand the logistics of quarantining students, how schools are moving small groups in and out of schools? Like when a child shows symptoms at a school, what's the next step? Okay. Have you ever seen the Big Bang Theory? Sure. The TV show, The Big Bang Theory? Have you ever heard Sheldon, Sheldon talk and you didn't understand a word he said? I, I think the process of quarantining and when to quarantine and when to not quarantine is about that difficult. It really is. You have to, you know, you really have to strip it back to, all right, there's a 14-day period. Now, this is, okay, way outside my pay grade here, Ben, okay? This is the way I understand it. There's a 14-day period, and on about day four is when you show symptoms if you've got it. So you've got it. That means you've got to be quarantined for 10 more days. Now, someone who came in contact with you who may or may not have it now has a 14-day period from that point because it takes four days or could take four days to show the symptoms, then the other 10, okay? So it's kind of odd that someone who's got it only has to stay out 10 days, but someone who was exposed to them has to stay out 14 days to show that they don't get it. You follow? Yes. Yeah, good, because I don't. But, I mean, that's I mean I do, but I don't. Uh, so that's kind of what that process looks like. That's what that process looks like when someone happens. And that happened, you know, that happened on day one at one of the school systems in South Alabama. Now, obviously, that child did not come to school and get COVID. That child came to school with COVID. And the test came in the next day, positive. And because they were on a block schedule, they were able to ascertain that that child had only been in contact with five other students. And it worked out really well that they only had to isolate or quarantine six total students. So that worked out very well in that regard. Uh, I think what you could see moving forward as a potential problem, man, is when a teacher tests positive and he or she has to quarantine or stay home, and then you have a lack of subs because we're, we're seeing a very big lack of substitute teachers across our state as well, and that could be a problem. Well, my last thing for you, sort of relates to something you just said. What are some things that we aren't considering, right? That people who aren't working in the education field, aren't working in these many school systems and schools, we don't notice, like you just mentioned, there is a lack of substitute teachers. Like I didn't know that. It makes sense that that would be happening. But what do you want people to know about this situation? And I know that there are a lot of moving pieces. What do you want us to know about uh, what teachers and in principals and kids and students are going through in the schools right now, especially as we get going again? Well, I would say that, and I think the, the majority of people already know this, but I would say that just an overwhelming sense of duty that our educators in this state have to educating the children of Alabama. We have 725,000 roughly students across the state that go to public schools and then another 100,000 more that go to private schools. And every educator, is working as hard as he or she can to make sure that that learning occurs and and occurs in a robust way so that Johnny or Susie is able to learn, matriculate, move forward. And at the same time, try to provide a sense of as much normalcy as possible because every year, you know, we, those of us who are out of school, understand the fleeting time frame of school. 13 years sounds like a long time to a 14 year old, but it's not. So every year they do something that's a watershed moment. They do something that is important. And a lot of those memories come from schools. 
and our teachers and principals and educators and custodians and lunchroom workers and bus drivers are all putting themselves out there on the front line. They really are to help educate our children. You know, we've got people that are bringing their kids in face to face because they realize that if they're at home, they're not going to learn as well as if they're face to face. And they're going to put things in protocol as much as they possibly can to mitigate the, the spread or someone getting sick. And it's just, it's just something that it's overwhelming the amount of work that these educators do. And I just think that to see that, that you have people that will, who may have an underlying condition that are still teaching, working, coming in, principals, directors of all walks, superintendents, everybody. So, and I would also say that I think that the educators understand the importance to their communities. They understand that the school in many places in Alabama is the hub of the community. And when that school is not functioning properly or the way it is normally functions, town doesn't, you know, community life doesn't function that way as well. And they're doing it in a way that they've never done it before uh, with other humans. It's one thing for you and I to have this call like this right here, or if you and I were on Zoom. It's very difficult to get a first grader to sit still and engage with you on a Zoom call, kind of like that all these teachers are doing across the board. So. Well, Dr. Wilson, thank you so much. Uh, ben, it's my pleasure. Thanks to my colleague Trish Crane for co-producing this episode. If you or anyone you know is affected by coronavirus and want to share your story, please email bflanagan at al.com. That's B-F-L-A-N-A-G-A-N at al.com. For all of our coverage on the outbreak and how it continues to impact Alabama, visit al.com slash coronavirus. If you like the show, please rate us and write a review. Thanks for listening.